Yvonne, we have some great news. We are the Podbean featured podcast of the month. Yes. Isn't that great? It's so exciting for us. And we use Podbean. So this is, um, it really feels like things are coming full circle. They, with our producer Raz, helped us get started. And now we're featured. Yes, exactly. It's crazy. Uh, so I'm going to read this. It says, this podcast is sponsored by Podbean. Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. We use Podbean to host Great Trials Podcasts. Download the free Podbean podcast app to start, record, and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Podbean provides everything you need to run your podcast, and you can run and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Download the free Podbean app today. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Check it out. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. She said, sir, I am so sorry if I was disrespectful to you. That is not my nature as a Southern woman, but I want you to understand that I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry for what I said. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, fresh off of a trip to Las Vegas for AAJ's convention, as well as our guest, Mark Diller, both of them back from uh, AAJ. So Yvonne, you want to uh, fill us in on what a great time it was in the heat and um, uh, uh, yeah. Penn City? I, it, you know, so we recorded from there on maybe my second uh, day in Vegas and um, the night after, like, I did not sleep at all because um, it, it was party. People were still partying in Vegas post UFC fight and whatever else. Right. Um, it grew on me during the week. But as I was telling you before we started recording, um, that that dry heat I loved so much uh, really dried out my sinuses. And then um, I was basically very relieved to be back in the uh, Georgia humidity when I got oh, yeah. back last week. And as you mentioned, our guest was there too, what I didn't know. So um, I think we were two floors apart, basically facing the same way at our hotel, but um, we never actually got to hang out. But Steve, as you mentioned, our guest for this episode is Mark Diller. Mark, thanks for being here. What'd you think of Vegas? Thanks for having me. Um, well, when I stepped off the plane to get back to Boston, it was 43 degrees cooler <laughs> than it was in Vegas. And I never welcomed uh, 73 degree temperatures right. so much in my life. So. Exactly. Exactly. I never thought I would miss Atlanta humidity uh, in July, but I did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> great hair though. I had much better hair in Vegas, but, uh, whatever. Um, it doesn't affect me very much. No. <laughs> I was going to say it, it would not affect me at all. I mean, unless it can somehow make me less gray. Yeah. yeah. Um, well anyway, so Mark, let me tell our listeners a little bit about you. Mark is a founder at Diller law PC, which he founded in 2013. And you can look him up at dillerlaw.com. That's D I L L E R law.com. Uh, Mark is based in Boston, as he mentioned, but he consults in cases all over the country. He's a super lawyer. He's faculty. He's a faculty of trial school, which we've talked about on the show before. He's um, fluent in Spanish. He's served on the board of governors on the Massachusetts Academy of Trial Attorneys um, for the Boston Inn of Court. 
He's a member of the multi-million dollar advocates forum. One of the the fun facts about Mark is that um, he was featured when he was in high school in uh Brookline's local paper, the Brookline Citizen, um, as student of the week. And the article was called Diller, an attorney in training. And uh, he he followed through on that promise um, nearly 30 years later. He went to the University of Michigan <clears throat> undergrad um, and Suffolk University Law School. Um, Mark has uh, holds property owners responsible for dangerous conditions, like the case that we are going to talk about here in a bit. He does product defect, unsafe work conditions on construction sites, dram shop cases, and really focuses on holding people in his community accountable, which I think is one of the things that we all hope we do through our cases is, is make things safer, make things better for the, the people that live around us. Um, Mark, uh, Mark's mentor after law school was his dad at the law offices of William Diller. And um, I'm hoping, Mark, you can tell us a little bit about um, the things that you learned from your dad, because he sounds like quite an impressive person as well. Yeah, thanks. So my dad was always my mentor. Obviously, he was a lawyer. And that's probably why in high school, I already knew that I was going to be Diller, an attorney in training. Uh, my dad came to this country um, when he was one because his parents had survived the Holocaust. And obviously, he was an only child at that point, lost most of his family and um, went off and graduated you know, college at UCLA and then went to law school, moved here to Boston and uh, Suffolk Law. I followed in his footsteps there and then he started his practice here. And he was always passionate in holding wrongdoers accountable and making sure to represent the interests of people um, who don't always have uh, the luxury of being able to help themselves. So he was passionate about that. And I obviously saw that throughout my lifetime growing up. And I guess despite me fighting it all those years, <laughs> There was, I was predetermined. It was inevitable that I would ultimately be a lawyer and follow in his footsteps. And so I joined his practice in um, 1997. And so I was lucky enough to have um, about 16, 17 years practicing together before he passed. So yeah. it was great. Very cool. I'm sure he um, he was very proud of you and and very proud of the work that you do, um, including the case that I, I am really interested in talking about because this to me is such a like real world case. Like I don't know if this is just because I um, rented for most of my life, but um, until very recently, but. Um, I just feel like this, everybody knows somebody that this has happened to, if it hasn't happened to themselves, has been in this kind of tough situation. And I think a lot of people struggle to, would, in these situations to find somebody to help them um, get a remedy, get justice. Um, so let's talk about the case we're going to talk about today. It is Car Catherine Erickson versus Rosalie um, Cuneo and also Jason Cuneo and Christopher Cuneo. Um, this is a case that um, was it arose out of an accident that happened in 2013. So Catherine Erickson was a tenant. She was living in Watertown, Massachusetts, which is part of the greater Boston area. 
And as I mentioned, she was living in a rental property and they were having issues at this property. The landlord at her property was, were the defendants. Um, Rosalie, sounds like primarily Rosalie Cunio was the person taking care of the property, but she, Jason and Christopher Cunio each held a third interest in the property. Um, Catherine and other tenants at this two unit, um, rental had informed Rosalie that the drain at the end of their driveway was not working properly, that water would gather at the end of this sloped driveway. And so the landlord, Rosalie, had a landscape company come in to evaluate what was going on and, and, and make a recommendation to fix what was happening. And that landscaper sounds, I'm sure we'll get into it, sounds like he was pretty experienced. He had recommended um, some underground piping in that area to divert the water elsewhere so it's not pooling at the end of the driveway. Um, and I imagine that was maybe a little more expensive than a landlord wanted to spend. Sounds very familiar to anybody who's rented from anyone, especially in a college town. And um, not that I'm speaking for public ex <laughs> personal experience, but um, instead, um, the landlord said, no, instead of doing that, let's just replace this pipe that's broken and, and dig a bigger drywall. Um, in that area. Um, but one of the things that she did not tell the landscaper when he was sort of advising what, what um, he could do and before he dug this well was that in addition to whatever kind of runoff you were going to have in that area, there were pumps from the basement that were also would pump water um, into this same area. So it would add to sort of the, the water accumulation. Um, so this repair doesn't work. Water continues to pool in the area. It takes drained it takes days to drain out. And meanwhile, um, winter is coming. So the, the, so the winter comes and in addition to this whole drainage problem that hasn't really been, been addressed, despite the tenants taking pictures and telling the landlord about it, um, the, the winter obviously contributes to the problem and the landlord doesn't, I've gotten a million of these when the water gets cold. I mean, when the weather starts to get cold, even in Savannah, um, kind of warnings, reminders from your landlord, warnings about things to do, especially if you've got um, a hose to the outside, any sort of piping on the outside, but even on the inside, things to do to keep your pipes from freezing. Um, well, the landlord, despite taking precautions at her own, where she lives to winterize her property, didn't do anything at the rentals. Um, it sounds like we'll talk, she owned more than one, but did, didn't do anything for this property to winterize it, didn't warn clients. Um, I mean, didn't warn the, her tenants, nothing. So in February, 2013, Catherine, our plaintiff, was coming home from her job where she was head coach of Northeastern University's track and field team. Um, and she was pulling into the driveway and didn't see that um, there was water spraying from a hose, leaking from a hose right in this same area where the water is going to, has been pooling at the bottom of the driveway. And it's February and it's Boston. So it's turned into ice and she doesn't see it. She falls, terrible fall, um, very serious injury, a right medial tibial plateau fracture required a titanium rod as well as several screws um, in her right leg, suffered, she was in the hospital for a while, suffered blood clots, um, continued to struggle with mobility and chronic pain. And as you can imagine, she's, she's a track and field coach. So she's got a job where this is a big deal. It's a big deal for anybody, but um, definitely a big deal for her job. 
So anyway, I'm going to stop talking soon. In March of 2019, Mark tried the case to a jury describing the landlord's negligence and the violations of, of common sense safety practices. Um, it was tried in Middlesex County, Massachusetts, if I haven't mentioned that. And the Mark convinced the jury they returned a, a verdict in favor of Catherine, awarding two, $2,324,000 thousand eight hundred and fifteen dollars and sixty two cents in damages 1.38 million of that was just the straight damages award and the rest was prejudgment interest um so much to talk about in, in this case and i'm hoping mark before we dig into a lot of the strategy um and and things you had to develop in this case um, first, please fix my facts. And in particular, I'm mm. sure you can do a better job than I did of explaining the setup of the property, where this driveway was in relation to where the cars were going and, and the basement and the, the whole drainage situation. Yeah, you did a great job with the description. So I'm not too sure I need to do too much with uh, fact checking. But just the significance of the property is... Um, this was a big hill and a, a, the driveway was a huge hill down to the garage. And then it was a two family property with the two properties on two levels above the garage. So when you had to drive down the hill at, at ground level, you were driving downhill, they had dug up the driveway and then everything drained downhill to the where the garage was and then you would exit your car and you couldn't enter the house from the driveway you had to go back through the driveway to go to your stairwell to enter the house if you were a tenant parking in that garage got it so you basically couldn't really avoid this situation to get in get in or out of where you live this this drainage problem that's our position gotcha yeah. Well, okay. and, and I do want to make sure that, uh, the, especially our friends down here in the South understand uh, what winterizing means, because that was sort of a big point. Uh, you know, we do get that every once in a while in Savannah that we have to winterize, but our friends in Florida probably don't, I'm guessing. Um, but, uh, but basically, when you know you're going to have below freezing temperatures, you need to make sure that you uh, drain uh, any of your water lines that are exterior and uh, turn off any exterior water so that no more water flows. Um, and, uh, and as Yvonne already mentioned that the, uh, landlord would do this at her own house, but not, but didn't do it at her properties. Um, but that was sort of a big contention. Another thing that I noticed from, you sent us a, a photograph mark along with, um, some drawings on it. It looks like where the, uh, water would pool and where maybe the black ice was, wasn't all that close to where the, um, where the hose had burst or where the pipe had burst. So um, maybe there wouldn't be an expectation that there would be ice in that area. Um, I don't know if that came into play at all or, or not, but it looked like it was actually kind of far away from the house or further, or maybe that's just how it looks from the, from the photograph. Well, it was significantly one of their defenses in the case is the, the drain in some regards wasn't 100% relevant. We introduced the drain much because we got some great testimony from the landscaper who said that he told her what the proper fix was and she testified 
or, and he told her, I don't want to do that. That's just a rental property. So we don't need to spend for it. <laughs> so no matter what, I had to find a way to incorporate the drain into my case. And obviously they wanted to keep the drain out of the case. There was no question that the drain had been consistently backing up and was causing a problem. But what happened here was by failing to winterize the property, the water would uh, freeze, it would expand, it would then thaw, and it would burst out of the pipes at some point when it gets too cold. And unfortunately, in Massachusetts, which some of our listeners in Vegas or other locations won't <laughs> understand, it gets brutally cold here, and any exposed pipes with water in it are just going to burst and uh, spray everywhere. And so that's what ultimately happened here. And the testimony from one of the uh, witnesses, the next door neighbor, said that he just saw a plume of water that was spraying out of the spigot. Um, the hose was attached. It wasn't clear whether it was coming from the hose or from the spigot, but whatever the case is, it was clearly something had burst and it was spraying the entire base of the driveway. Um, and it had reached, I want to say, 15 to 20 feet out in in a semicircle around the base of the driveway. So um, one of the things that I didn't mention was that on the verdict form, the jury had the opportunity to say whether they thought um, if Catherine was negligent and if her negligence contributed to um, her injuries in any way. And they said no, that she was not negligent. But I'm wondering in in looking at this case just generally and as a Bostonian, you know, are were you worried that um that a that a jury would be, I guess, critical of of Catherine for not uh I don't know, not looking for ice or not knowing what needed to be done on the property herself as as somebody who'd be familiar, who'd been living there for a while and who would be familiar with Boston winters. Absolutely. To be a Massachusetts lawyer and think that you're going to prevail on a snow and ice case for a Boston <laughs> jury, you've right. got another thing coming. Right. I mean, they're like, please, but just come into court today. I slipped five times on <laughs> ice and I can't expect anybody to clean that up. So there was no question in my mind that that was a big issue. And that was actually the focus a lot of times on the defendant. So um, we actually accepted her portion of responsibility in front of the jury. We made sure that Catherine did so in front of the jury. She took responsibility for her role and we did so in closing. Um, and the reason why the jury still came back with zero is because the defendant accepted no responsibility mm -hmm. and blamed Catherine a hundred percent. And, you know, when you're weighing the responsibility of Catherine, who only has seconds to perceive and react to the problem when the landlord had months, if not years, to avoid this problem. That's how we wanted the jury to think about this case. And clearly they understood that. The defense wanted to focus on the event. They wanted to focus on the 12 hours you know, between of that day be, before the fall and say, well, my landlord never knew about it. She, you know, how could she have fixed it? What could she have done? This was completely a surprise to her. She only learned about it after the fact. 
And you, by the way, live there and you should have known about it. So, and you should have paid attention to the fact that it's, it's Massachusetts right. in the middle of a cold <laughs> February. So watch where you're walking. And we needed to move the case away from the day of the event and move it as far back in time as possible. And we had some great evidence that helped us do that with her knowledge of the defect in the drain, which is the location where our client fell. And then we had the winterization of the property, which in Massachusetts, it starts to get cold already sometimes by October and they start recommending that. So this happened in February. So we had at least, what is that, five months? That's why I went to law school, so I could avoid yeah. counting. But, <laughs> right, right. You know, if it doesn't divide by three, I'm not really sure <laughs> right. what the numbers mean. But that's it. it. You know, we looked back to the first points in time when that landlord should have been able to have avoided this inevitable um, event from happening. And we were happy to accept responsibility for the seconds that Catherine had to perceive and react, but they needed to accept responsibility for the months, if not years, that they had an opportunity to respond to this situation. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we're on a first name basis (laughs) you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life. 
videos, they do settlement documentaries, they do demonstratives, and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. One thing I was wondering, and this is sort of along the lines of what Yvonne was just asking you, was that um, I noticed that your client had been living there since 2007. And so it had been there five years or almost six years before this happened. Um, and I'm wondering, was there, did they, did the defense try and put up any evidence like, well, you know, didn't, they didn't winterize these six years before and never had a, a burst pipe or, you know, she knew about winterizing, never had this issue. I mean, that, those kind of arguments that since she had been there so long and there had never been, you know, sort of a, a burst pipe before that, that meant that the uh, the defendant somehow uh, has less responsibility. I was just wondering if, if that came up and if it did, how you handled that. Well, it absolutely came up. And um, we were concerned with the fact that our client had lived there for so long. We were concerned with the fact that, you know, our clients kind of acknowledged that this landlord was sort of hands off and, and we were concerned with the fact that Ms. Cuneo, who owned the property um, with her two sons, was a fairly nice woman, you know, or she tried to be. At least before this event, she seemed right. like a nice woman. Mm -hmm. And she always seemed to try to do the right thing. I put that in air quotes because, you know, she's like, yeah, if you need to take care of something, I'll, I'll reimburse you. Just go ahead and take care of it. So there was a lot of onus on the tenants to do things around the property. But what I had going for me is uh, Catherine is from the South and Lee, her spouse, is also from the South. And the two of them, even though they'd been there for six years, were no experts in you know, managing properties during the winter. And that's part of why they were tenants, right? Is because they didn't own a property in, uh, in the East Coast during the winter. And so they really incredibly didn't know. I mean, they could have contemplated that risk, but it really wasn't um, something that they had ever even thought of. Um, prior to this having occurred. Yeah, I, I, it feels like a good time to reference uh, Atlanta snowpocalypse, which will never live down about <laughs> right. uh, yeah. all our highways got shut down. But that was an ice situation. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, uh, I think it was I, like an inch of snow, right? If that. Over ice, <laughs> over ice Mark. People abandoning their cars on the highway and just walking home. Yeah. For people who don't know, I have friends who like spent the night in like a subway, right. um, like restaurant, like, like subway uh, food place. Um, I, I, I think so. you called snowplow contractors from Massachusetts to come <laughs> right, help yeah. you like, because up. you didn't even have enough snowplows in the state of Georgia <laughs> right. to take That's care right. of the inch of snow. Right. <laughs> so right. I'm sure those Bostonians were very much like, oh, yeah, those Southerners yeah, don't yeah, know a exactly. damn thing about winterizing. Um, well, it's just sort of related, I think, to one of the things that I thought you really 
we, you sent us your, the outline of your opening statement. And one of the things that I really liked that you did that, that I would think would be effective for that, um, for that jury. And certainly was effective for me is you framed a lot of it in the steps that you took to make sure the ca- the case was meritorious. Right. Yes. Um, and I really liked, um, I really liked how it was just, it was very organized. It was very direct, but it's kind of like, uh, you know, you start, it's, it's, it does two things at least because it's an overview of the case, but it's also like letting the, you know, flagging for the jury. I'm not wasting your time. This is a, this is a good case. And here's what I did to make sure it was a good case. And so I was wondering if that's something um, that you do a lot, or if it's something that just really made sense for the context of this case. Oh, I do it a lot. So, and I spend a lot of time doing focus groups as well. So I want to know what, real life juries uh, think is important. I recognized long ago that as lawyers, we have egos and we go to law school and we learn to talk a different language. And then when we go back into a courtroom and we try to talk to a real life jury, they don't understand a word we're saying. And then the things that we think are important mean nothing to them. Mm -hmm. So what was really important in our development of this case, and I do this in every one of our Uh, case openings is I like to figure out what real life juries think is important and lay all that out ahead of time so that they hear these are all the things that we looked into before we came here. This is the evidence you're going to hear. And I already know during opening because I see the nod of the heads of the actual jurors consistent with what the focus group jurors had previously told me was important. And they're like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's definitely the responsibility of the landlord or whatever kind of case it is. But in this case, we just laid out all of those steps that our focus group jurors had already told us was significant in the outcome of our case. And we chronologically put that in order for them so they would hear it and not along with us as we were developing the story. Yeah. And just so our listeners understand, I, um, because we don't have the opening, you know, that everybody's going to be able to read what Mark did in his opening was, I mean, so first of all, as Mark has already said, this is a slip and fall on ice in Boston, Massachusetts, which probably everybody has had experience with. And so at least jurors walking into the courtroom are going to think, why am I here on a slip and fall case on ice in Boston, Massachusetts? Um, But what Mark did is took them through step by step, everything that he did, he and his team did in order to make sure that this was a meritorious case and all the work that they had done as far as investigating it, getting experts out there, looking at, you know, the rules, talking to the neighbors and, and basically just took the jury step by step through the opening. And I really, Really liked it, especially in a case like this, where you're going to be um, looking at some jury biases, uh, where they they at least their initial impression might be, we shouldn't be here for a, a, a slip and fall in an ice case in Boston. Um, and so I, I really liked the way you walked the jury through that and handled that and, uh, and, and sort of answers all those questions right up front for the jury, why this case is a, an important case and why this case is different and how we made sure that it's, uh, it's an important case. I appreciate you saw that. And then also I will tell you that it wasn't just the jury um, that I figured I had to convince, but 
when I first walked into court and the court clerk, who I now have become good friends with, uh, found out about the case, she laughed at me and she says, this is a slip and fall in ice. She says, why does it need to be any more than one day? And do you really think you're going to win this case? So that prejudice is real and yeah. nobody thinks that they're going to take a slip and fall in ice case and, and win it anymore. Yeah. Um, but hopefully I, the insurance company also yeah. <laughs> figured that that was going to be the case. Right. Uh, right. Well, and I think that points out how important courtroom staff is. And, and I, it, it gets overlooked by lawyers all the time. But I mean, not only, you know, can they be your best friend in the courtroom because they're uh, dealing with every you know, the judges, juries, they're dealing with everybody. Um, but they see so many cases that they can sit there and tell you, like, look, you know, what you're doing here isn't working. It's not a good case or it is a good case. Or like, you know, in this case, Mr. Diller, you've, you've uh, convinced me, you know, I you know didn't initially think it, but I mean, but courtroom staff is um, they can be, they can be your best friend or your worst enemy, depending yeah. on how you treat them. So. Yeah. yeah. I hope uh, they're not my worst enemy because right. otherwise I have, I've chosen the wrong profession. Right. That's right. right. <laughs> um, Mark, I'm, I'm hoping, especially since you mentioned it, you can talk a little bit more about the style of focus groups that you like to do, whether, you know, you do the whole, um, you know, sort of formal openings and closings, or if you kind of um, like to round table things, or if you do all different kinds of, of, of things. So we do the gamut. We run all sorts of uh, focus groups, whether they be narrative focus groups on just telling the story. Sometimes I want to test the all the negative uh, attribution that will be applied to my own client, all the things they're going to tell me my client did wrong, even though I didn't even contemplate that she did anything wrong. I mean, they'll tell me much worse than I could ever have conceived of. And, and then I want to know, well, how do you overcome that? And that's the worst that I'm going to have to deal with. But what's the answer to that? Can you ever conceive of, of a response to that? And hopefully, I learn that before I ever end up at trial. Um, and I deal with that affirmatively. And so I also spend a good portion of my opening addressing everything that a focus group told me that my client did wrong or is wrong with my case. And then every response to that, I addressed in one section of my opening. So even if the defense was not going to raise it as a defense in the case, I knew that it would be on the radar of some of those jurors, and I needed to affirmatively address that, not only in my um, opening, but in my offer of proof through the trial. So, Yeah. So how early do you like to focus group before, before you're going to try a case? If it's a case that I'm going to probably, if I'm going to file a case, I sometimes like to focus group it before I file suit. Sometimes I file it to decide whether I'm going to keep the case. Mm -hmm. And I want to know whether it's a case that I think I want to invest energy and resources in. Then I will focus group it throughout the discovery process because my discovery will um, be affected by what I learned from the focus group. 
And I will oftentimes learn so much from the focus group that will change the questions that I decide to ask the deponents or to solicit documentation through a request for production documents or interrogatory. So it affects everything I do. And then if I'm actually going to trial on a case, I'll have focus group the opening, I'll have focus group the other side, I'll focus group the exhibits. Um, I try to do as many focus groups as possible, but I believe in short focus groups on each issue. I don't believe in spending four, three hours on one case. I'll focus group five cases in okay. one three hour session and just kind of hit what I want to address during that short duration of time and then take another focus group and then retest it. See, is that consistent? And I've evolved my case because of what I've learned, see whether or not it changes the way that they respond to that same set of facts. That is so cool. Yeah, really. It's, it's so much harder than it sounds. So I'm sorry to talk over you, Steve. <laughs> no, no, the, that's okay. I was just wondering when you are focusing these cases early, uh, you know, even sometimes before you file suit, how much are you getting into the, um, the, 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 I guess the, the specifics of the case, or are you focusing more sort of general principles or general ideas? Or I mean, how? how t tell us a little bit about those focus groups. You mean pre-filing? Right. Sometimes I don't even know um, a lot of the the facts, right? I only know my own client's point of view, but I've never heard the other side. Maybe I have a police report or some witness statements to tell me what's going on. But I kind of want to get a gauge for the radar of the jury. Like, how do they receive certain facts? And what issues am I up against before I've even um, take on this case. And it's gonna help develop how I frame the case and develop the direction I decide to go in pursuing the case. Cause I might drop theories altogether just because even though I could win on a law school exam, <laughs> I know I wouldn't win in front of a, a, a jury. So I will, um, early just try to gauge what's important and what's not about a case and what people's first instincts are. First instincts yeah. is so important to me and I want to take their first instincts. And if they're favorable, I want to drive them home. And if they're not favorable, I want to figure out how, if at all, I can flip it. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I, I think that like, I think that's so awesome. I think as you've, um, you know, clearly, you know, implemented in, in your practice, jury focus groups can be so helpful. But I think, I think what can be hard about focus groups is that you're like, okay, I, I, you know, I did my focus group or I scheduled my focus group or whatever I did it. And it's like, there's a lot more, it sounds a lot, it's a lot more involved than that to actually utilize effectively, um, the feedback that you get from your focus group and realizing that you don't want to win your focus group. You know, you want to, you want to lose your focus group as badly as possible. <laughs> and, right. but just taking that stuff that you learn and absorbing it and remembering it. I mean, I think Steve, I know in some of our cases, some of the struggle has been, we don't do them all the way along. And so then we do them when we get fairly close to trial and kind of distilling everything that you do learn from it and actually using it can be a challenge. 
Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. So I don't know, just just tough. So I'm wondering, one of the interesting things, um, I don't know if you got to talk to this jury, but one of the interesting things I noticed from the verdict form was that um, I think they found that the defendants were negligent, but they did not find that the um, warranty of habitability was was breached. And I'm wondering if you got to talk to them about that or, or what you think was going on there. I knew that was going to happen ahead of time. <laughs> okay. So the breach of the warranty of habitability to me was important as a um, legal theory only because it introduced the drain into the case. Okay. So yeah. by showing that the landlord knowingly ignored a safety problem right at a means of egress, I knew that the only way to bring that fact into the case uh, with 100% certainty was to leave the, the claim for breach of the warranty of habitability. I also knew that from a leverage standpoint, if I prevailed on that, I was entitled to attorney's fees and costs and, up, and maybe treble damages because in Massachusetts, that's a breach of our consumer protection statute if they mm -hmm. violate. So I had to leave that in there for leverage and I introduced just enough facts. But if you recall from looking at my closing, out of, if I had a 30 minute closing, I think I had 45 seconds addressed the breach of the warranty. Yeah. I had given up on that claim. I just needed the evidence into to the case because I knew that was going to drive the anger of the jury. Mm -hmm. And I knew that was the only way for me to get the value I was hoping for out of that jury. So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not gonna come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is, is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie yeah. cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. 
Another question I had was the, I mentioned this at the beginning, the prejudgment interest, which was significant in this case. Um, and I'm wondering if that is something in Massachusetts that you set up with like an early demand or if it's something that, uh, that always happens. It's from the data filing. It's 12% from the data filing and that's by statute. Wow. So yeah, I think our neighbor, Rhode Island has from the date of accident. So that even goes back further, but we're from the date of filing. The, the benefit of having a um, system that's so backed up is yeah. that yeah. even though <laughs> we're delaying our day of trial, we're, we're still gaining 12% interest per year. And that is some leverage that we have all the way through. Yeah. So during the pandemic, obviously insurers were... Um, not that willing to part with money a lot of times, but the fact that we already had cases in litigation and that the interest was already running and that by the time we got into a courtroom, now they would have another added 24% interest on top of whatever verdict they got. It was a point of leverage that got some cases moved on the higher value cases. Yeah, I mean, that is a, a really powerful tool. And um, I mean, because you the the verdict essentially was 1,380,000 and the prejudgment interest is 944,000. I mean, so uh, basically about 75% uh, tacked onto the, uh, onto the verdict. Um, you know, so uh, that that is just amazing. One, one of the things I was gonna ask is I noticed that this happened in 2013 and gets tried in 2019. Is that pretty standard for uh, cases around the, the Boston area or th did this one take longer? Or it would, it, how, how does I'd, that work? I'd say it depends on which county you're in. Right. So okay. certain counties are much more backed up than others. Uh, Middlesex, which is uh, where we were here, and Suffolk County, which is Boston, those are our two busiest counties and usually the ones that have the biggest backlog. Um, but what ended up happening on this uh, case is I believe that we were twice before scheduled for trial and we got bumped. And then when we got bumped, the last time we got bumped, they were like, okay, well, we're not gonna be able to reach you, so we need to reschedule you. They said, can you do it a year from today? And that was like, the, and I was like, can you give me an earlier date? They said, <laughs> no. So as, as it turned out in this case, as frustrating as it was at the time and as angry as my client was, you know, that we couldn't get justice sooner, it turned out to be to our benefit. So everything works out for a reason, right? Yeah. 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 Well, and I mean, it, it, it makes <laughs> sense that, uh, that, you know, that you would, I mean, from, from the standpoint, especially of somebody who's on, who has an ongoing injury, you know, it makes sense that there would be some sort of, um, acknowledgement of the fact that they basically, while waiting to try this case that they won, that they went out with this money that they ended up being entitled to. Um, I, 
wish Georgia had that. Yeah, really. <laughs> um, but so I had, I wanted to talk about damages, but before I moved on, Steve, was there other stuff kind well, of on I, the liability side you wanted to talk about? Yeah. Two, two issues I, I wanted to cover. And you, you sort of touched on it, Mark, uh, early on, which was uh, Miss Miss uh, uh, Cuneo, you said that, it, that at least before this happened, she seemed to be a very uh, nice or, you know, person. And it sounds like that might've changed. And, and I, I, I can't get over this. Um, uh, in one of the briefs, I read a statement that she made, I think, in a deposition uh, with this. Yeah, she was asked in deposition why she was selling her rental property. And she stated, because I have no more faith in these girls destroyed my faith in humanity. I believe that these girls took advantage of me from the day they moved in, um, which they had been there almost six years. And then, you know, you have this just terrible injury and she believes she's the one being taken advantage of. So I'm wondering, how did how did she do at trial? Did you call her for cross in your case in chief? And and I guess how, how did how did she come across? Um, so. The, the quote that you just read, which um, was a great motivating factor for my client, right? I want my client to hear that yeah. because it's going to help me tell my client we need our day in court, right? When she mm -hmm. hears the landlord turn it on her. But um, that actually didn't come in and we chose not to put it into evidence because we didn't want the jury to know that she sold the properties. Right. I wanted the, I, I wanted the jury to still believe that this is an active landlord in the community. So I was the one who kept that statement out and any facts of the sale of the property out. And, um, that was a pretrial motion in limine that we filed. The defendant did really well. Um, and we were very surgical with her. So we just needed to develop, we called her in our case in chief and she gave us all the admissions that we needed. I mean, in reality, yeah. we just need to juxtapose the fact that she knows it's her responsibility. She does this for her own personal property where her own personal safety and that of her friends and family is important. And we wanted to juxtapose that against uh, what she does for the tenants. That was really what we believed and what we learned from our focus groups was going to drive this case. So if we did nothing else in her examination, but develop that set of facts, that would have been adequate. Yeah. And we let her try to play off what an innocent victim she was and what a nice, lovely woman she was. And and I made a point of that um, in closing and addressed that head on. In fact, actually, I addressed that during jury selection. I wanted to make sure that one of the issues I addressed during jury selection is if you get chosen for this jury and the law allows and the evidence supports that the defendant is legally responsible, no matter how much you might like the defendant, are you willing to look the defendant in the eye and tell her that you're responsible for the full measure damages? And every one of those jurors before we ever ended up at uh, getting selected for my case had agreed that they would not consider that a factor 
in deciding the outcome of the case. And I reminded them of that during closing. And I said, as much as we may like Ms. Cuneo, it doesn't take away her responsibility or your responsibility to do the right thing and to hold her accountable for the full measure of the damages. Yeah, I am. Um, I, I did want to ask you about voir dire uh, because I, I, not only did I like that you you put it to the jury that way about looking her in the eye, but you 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 prefaced it by saying, you know, we don't want your sympathy, and are you willing to look my client in the eye and say we're going to find against you because we don't believe the evidence is there? And you you said that first, and then you went on to the defendant. So showing that you were willing to take the same, you know, ha have have the the same treatment from the jury as the uh, defendant. I really, uh, I really liked that you, um, the, the way you did that and the way you handled it. And I, I did want to talk about voir dire, a couple of things. One is, is that, that the, um, the style of, uh, of voir dire, at least that I was reading from your outline of, you know, sort of saying, you know, some people think this, and then some people think this, which way do you lean? And then let's discuss that. I've always liked that in order to get people talking about how they might feel things. Uh, and then, you know, and, and ultimately, you know, potentially setting them up for a challenge for cause. Um, the, the other issue that you brought up right at the beginning um, in your voir dire was that your uh, client was in a uh, lesbian relationship and you were wondering whether or not that was going to be an issue for the jury. Um, do you want to talk about that at all, about, about what you learned during voir dire, voir dire um, in that questioning? We actually ended up having, if I'm not mistaken, the judge affirmatively addressed that rather than us addressing it. Just to, we didn't disclose, uh, have to disclose that she was in a lesbian relationship because the judge took care of it with a more general question. Um, that was what we were intending to develop, but we ended up allowing that issue to be addressed affirmatively by the judge. And then quite honestly, I do believe, because we kept the client and our client's wife out of the room during the trial. And I don't, I think for a certain number of the jurors, they were not, um, they were not expecting her wife to walk in as a wife because her name was Lee right? and it was, you know, it, it didn't tell the story. So they weren't expecting it. And I think that, you know, there's always a little drama in trials and I wasn't really expecting that part of the drama, but that came out and I was afraid. And, you know, at the time, a, a Trump America with the polarization and all the, hate that exists in our world. I just didn't that, want that to be an issue that would affect my client's right to justice. Yeah, I wanted to make sure that that was inoculated and that the people that were going to be deciding this case were going to be deciding it on the four corners of the facts and the evidence and not on some of their external preconceived opinions. And did you, did you feel by the judge addressing it that, that, that it was able to, you know, that you were able to inoculate against that or, you know, cause I feel like a lot of times with issues like that, you want to be able to do it yourself, but sometimes things are nice coming from the judge instead of one of the lawyers. That's what I preferred to come from the judge. Uh, I will say that um, we were in Middlesex County, which is home to Harvard and Cambridge and it's maybe one of the most liberal counties 
in the country. So as concerned as I was that that could infiltrate one or two members of my jury, I think that the overwhelming majority of my jury were never going to be bothered or affected by that. Um, but I still wanted to make sure because we all know it's tough enough to be a plaintiff's lawyer. Right. And we have plenty of other obstacles to overcome together with the burden. I just don't need to introduce an outside element of prejudice that I just can't deal with. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and so I was happy to let the judge deal with that and make sure that those who stayed, that wasn't the issue as far as yeah. we could tell. Yeah. yeah. So uh, one of the things you said there is that you didn't have your client and um, her uh, partner in the courtroom during the trial. Did were were they out for most of it and just called in for their testimony and that was it? And and if if so, how did you explain that to the jury and how how did you handle that with the jury? Um, I'm trying to remember how we ended up ultimately handling it in that case, but. I usually, I filed a motion in limine to sequester all the witnesses. And when it's allowed, I have the judge instruct the jury that there's a sequestration. That, and then jurors just understand that witnesses are just coming in one at a time and they're being called in. There's actually more drama anyways to having to swing the doors of the courtroom open and bring a new person in that nobody's seen before. But my client was sitting in the hallway every day. And so the jury was going to know that she was there taking it seriously because they would have to probably see her at one point when they got went to the elevator or walked past. But they may not have seen her in the actual courtroom. And I think that it was understood. I didn't have to directly deal with it, though I understand in certain circumstances I might. Right. But in that yeah. case, I didn't. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, I do have one last question before we move on to damages. One of the things I, I thought you handled really well in closing was this, it's, it seemed like a theme that the defense tried to play, uh, it was that she was sort of this involuntary, involuntary landlord, uh, and that she didn't want to be a, um, didn't want to be a landlord. Um, and I thought you played that really well. In fact, you you, you called it the Houdini defense uh, because you had them, you know, locked in place with the the facts, the with the evidence and with the law. And they were still trying to come up with some new defense in order to get out of it. But um, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, their defense of, uh, of calling her an involuntary involuntary landlord and, and how you handled that? Yeah, of course. Thanks. So actually, one of the things that I try to do before I end up in trial is already start thinking about what my theming is going to be for closing. And one of the themes that I intended to bring into closing was um, that people still need to know their own limitations. And in this case, we were trying to explain why this landlord, who might be nice, still didn't do her job, didn't do what she was supposed to do as a landlord. and we kind of said, oh, it's because she, maybe she didn't know better, but that's still not an excuse. She still has to understand that she may not be a professional landlord, even if she owns some rental properties and is extra source of income, but that doesn't relieve her of the responsibility of finding somebody who knows what they're doing 
and hiring them to do it or to learn about it yourself. So that was always going to be our one of our case frames. We never told the other side that and we didn't introduce that. I always believe I, I heard Mark Mandel say it and and I've implemented in every trial since I've heard him say it is you always want to hold back some things for closing that are going to be new to the jury. And one of those is our key case frame. I don't want to deliver our case frame too early. And in this case, knowing your limits was one of our key case frames that we held back. And throughout the case, it was a gift that the other defense attorney gave to us right away in opening when he made up some defense that doesn't exist in Massachusetts law, where he said she was just an involuntary landlord. She was an older woman. Her husband was the professional landlord. He owned all these rental properties. He died. Woe is her. She inherited all of these rental properties, and now she had to become a, a landlord, but she didn't know what to do with the property. So she tried to do the right thing, but it wasn't like her profession. And she was just never in this just to make the money. She was kind of forced, this was forced upon her. And once they hand delivered that to us and they made that part of the case, I never objected. I let it filter into the case. I wanted, I almost encouraged the defense to keep digging that hole because in closing, I knew that I could bring out that line about the Houdini defense. When you've got them locked in, you know, on the law and you've got them locked in on the facts and the evidence, they got no way out. So they just make crap up and throw it up against the wall. They call that the Houdini defense. And they're hoping that jurors like you are just going to accept that and give them a pass. Yeah. And that's what they did in this case. And the involuntary landlord, I said, I, I asked them because luckily we gave the jury instructions ahead of time before we did that part of the closing. But I was like, go ahead, look at the jury instructions. You'll see nowhere in those jury instructions anything about this involuntary landlord defense. It doesn't exist. It's made up. It's just a Houdini defense orchestrated yeah. by the defense lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and I, go ahead. Well, I just was going to say, I think that context is helpful too. And I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because when I read your motion in limine, going back for a second, when I read your motion in limine about um, her selling the, what she said and her selling the property, I initially was like, I would think I'd want that in, you know, like, oh, if this is, if this is what I've got to do to be a good, um, to be a good landlord, or if this is, if this is how much work it's going to be, then never mind. I'm, I'm getting out of the, the landlord business. You know, I almost thought those be facts that I would want the jury to hear. Um, but the flip side is, is knowing that they were going to go to this involuntary landlord place and having them think that she's still <laughs> this forced landlord around town is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I'll just add I, I, the theme that you held back knowing your limits, because you you did make a great point in closing, which was, look, you know, if she felt like she didn't know what she was doing or couldn't do it or didn't like doing it, she could just hire a property management company um, and they'll do it. 
you know, and, and all she's got to do is basically sit back and collect checks, you know, and they'll, they'll take a small percentage. So I, I, I like that you had not only, you know, that you address the fact that, that, you know, she was making this claim about involuntary uh, landlord, but that there was a solution to it that she just, you know, hadn't done for more than 13 years. I think you pointed out. My partner in the case, attorney Rich Mucci, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention his name, but he came up with that line, which is there's more to being a landlord than just collecting the rent checks. Yeah. And it really resonates. And then we use that as part of the, um, as part of our um, theming of the case. Yeah. I'm wondering, did you get to, and um, I, I can't remember if I saw this in your outline, if you got to really explore with the jury, how many of them were renters and homeowners, because I feel like renters, that just like hits home. <laughs> well, we addressed um, the responsibilities of landlords dur or of property owners and landlords specifically in voir dire. So we explored that, but on the four corners of the jury um, form, we could have, I think we could tell whether or not they own the property or rented it. But regardless, we elicited that during voir dire indirectly by talking about the yeah. responsibilities and their expectations for um, landlords. Because we wanted to know, juxtapose the responsibility of a landlord with a tenant who was living at that same property for seven years. And she's there, tw my tenant was there 24 seven and she would know better what's safe or unsafe about that property than the landlord who just owns the property. And I needed to understand, is the jury still going to expect that the landlord has responsibilities notwithstanding that? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, one of the things that I, I, I really wanted to talk about in damages and, and some of what we've already talked about, we always like to talk about how you handle your client. Um, but one of the things particularly that I think is useful to our list for our listeners to hear about is like, you could oversimplify this case and, you know, describe it as a, you know, a broken leg or, or a bad leg break. And I'm interested in how you, um, what you did with the, the witnesses to really set up, um, the severity of the injury, the, the implications of the injury. And I'm also curious, I'm not sure if it's in what you sent us, whether, um, you introduced the medical bills or, um, you know, whether you had them, the jury kind of work, you know, whether you felt they'd be an anchor and let the jury kind of do their thing. I'll address that first. I waived all medicals. So we introduced no specials in the case. I didn't want that to be a low anchor in the case. And, um, and so that was the right decision for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Um, so with regard to the damages, they always said, this is just a, a broken knee case and with a questionable liability. And, and the insurance company offered $75,000, I believe was their high offer on this case. So, you know, they said, you're not gonna win on liability. And by the way, it's just a broken knee. And my client who is really a remarkable woman and still is a remarkable woman, um, she recovered fairly well and she she was one of the first women in the nation to cross over and be a 
men's division one men's and women's track coach. So she had accomplished so many great feats and we wanted to build up that story and talk about everything that she had accomplished and all of her dreams. Because I do believe that the most significant damages are the damages that are behind the eyes and in between the ears. The emotional consequences of the physical injury are mm-hmm. far greater. Mm-hmm. And for my client, the physical injury was serious, but it was so mentally taxing on my client's psyche because of who she was and how amazing she was and what a part of her identity, her athletic prowess was. I mean, one of the ways that she motivated her athletes, her male athletes, is they would stand up and they did like the javelin or the discus throw. And um, and they would stand up and they would screw up. And she told a story. I think the, the story came out during trial that the number one recruit in the country was on her team in like the um, one, like the javelin or, or the discus or the shot put. I don't remember which one. And he was this big, strong guy from the Midwest. And he was in there during practice in his first year. And he just, he was an emotional wreck. He just couldn't get it right. He was just screwing up every which way. And she was like, get out of the way. And here she is, you know, a woman who's crossing over into a male dominated sport. She says, move out of the way. And she takes that same male um, shot put, which is much heavier than the one that she's used to throwing. And she shows him exactly how to do it. She throws it so much further and better than he ever did it. (laughs) She says, is that so hard? Now get in there and do it yourself. (laughs) That was one of the ways that she motivated people. Her athletic prowess was such a significant part of, of how she helped motivate her male athletes. And so when Even though she went on to win coach of the year after this injury in her in her division, she still felt like she was inadequate compared to what she was capable of being because she couldn't do some of the things that she had done to motivate her athletes. And so when you talk about the damages, we filtered that in through we brought in one of her co-coaches to talk about. Um, what it was like to see her in action and how, you know, she went from running along the sidelines with her team during all the track events to having to be wheeled Mm -hmm. around in a wheelchair. And then we brought out one of her top recruits who was a woman who was, you know, that was projected to be an Olympian. And my client had recruited her to the university And this woman took the stand and said, I was there because of her. I had so much to learn. And she was out for like one and a half years of my um, time there. And I felt such a loss by not being able to have her teaching me the way that I wanted her to. And, And so we did that to kind of demonstrate that I don't care the defense kept harping on the fact that she's won all these accolades and she's still making the same salary and she's doing such great work since. 
And I said, that doesn't change that you took away the person that she was. You took away her identity. Mm -hmm. And even if she is strong enough to overcome that, that does not relieve you of the responsibility of being responsible for having taken that away. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's really powerful. I thought it was just uh, really telling about how uh, courageous your client was that, you know, even after this injury, she's basically coaching her team from the uh, from her hospital bed. Uh, you know, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, they went on to win the championship, uh, which uh, just, you know, goes to show, you know, what a fighter she is. And the, and I, I have to imagine with the jury that even suffering from a, a terrible injury like this, the fact that she, you know, wanted to fight through it uh, could do nothing but endear her to the to the jury. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The jury really um, connected with my client. I know that on a couple levels. Number one is um, during closing, three of my uh, jurors cried. And one of them sent me a a LinkedIn message after the trial to tell me what a remarkable uh, woman my client was and how they were just so happy to be a part of that trial and the justice that I helped deliver for her, that they so appreciated that. And uh, there was one point in the trial, which I really want to share, was I think a really significant part is in every case, I think you need drama, right? I mean, this is theater for these jurors. And the drama in my case came when we put our plaintiff on the stand, who we, we positioned it that she would take the stand later. And the defense, um, who was a male, was pretty aggressive with her. And my client, who was a pretty powerful female, both physically and emotionally, did not back down. She was uber aggressive. And usually I would be cringing. And in fact, actually, I was. There were points in time where I was the one handling that. So in Massachusetts, the lawyer handling the direct has to be the one to object um, and handle objections. And my co-counsel is looking at me like, are you going to object already and stop this madness? Because my client was getting aggressive and fighting with the defense lawyer. And I was truly afraid at certain points whether or not uh, the jury was now against my client and angry that she was getting so angry and, and defensive or whether they were on her side. So I decided my I only asked like five questions on redirect, but the very first one was, um, Catherine, you seemed pretty angry on cross-examination. Why? You know, and, and she turned to the defense lawyer and she said, sir, I am so sorry if I was disrespectful to you. That is not my nature as a Southern woman, but I want you to understand that this case is my life and you have attacked the very foundation of my integrity by the way you asked those questions of me. And if so, I was a little aggressive and I was a little adversarial in the way that I handled it. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry for what I said. And that I didn't really need to say anything else beyond that. Yeah, it was it wasn't planned. 
it was, I could not have scripted a better answer. In fact, I probably didn't even do it justice because it was probably more articulate coming from her. <laughs> but that jury, whatever anger or whatever um, feelings, negative feelings that they had towards my client leading up to that, totally shifted the way that she answered that redirect question. And I knew that most of those jurors, especially the women on that jury, were fighting for my client. Yeah, It's always challenging to have a male cross-examining a female and get aggressive. And then for her, I didn't think she needed to get aggressive back, but when she did, I figured we had to cut that air and we had to address it affirmatively. Yeah. Yeah, that's just so effective. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about, so you you didn't put any specials in at all, but you, and you, uh, it, it, it was unclear to me. It, it sounds like maybe the law changed in Massachusetts that you can suggest a number to them, but you chose not to. Uh, but you sort of, uh, you, you want to go through your analysis that you use with the, with the wanted uh, sort of uh, ad and, and how you presented that to the jury? Yeah, I did not ask for a number, even though I was permitted to. And I deliberately, contrary to my normal practice, chose not to hear because I felt like we had so much credibility with this jury. And the one thing that I think kills any case is overreaching. And I felt as if without any real anchors in the case of numbers that I could use to deliver a number back to the jury that wouldn't be a shock to the system. I was afraid that I could lose all of the momentum and all the positive energy I had developed during that trial if I asked for too much. So I decided to then tell them that we trust them to do the right thing and deliver the right number. And my client has assented to us giving them that power, which is empowering the jury. And then we used a want ad. I mean, of my closing, um, if it was 30 minutes long, I'd say five minutes was allocated to damages, even though that's such a big part of our case. And I just need to summarize it in a want ad because it's really hard, I think, to ask a jury to put a number to, to somebody's suffering. So I equated it to a want ad, which is a familiar tactic that many lawyers uh, practice. But when I read the want ad saying, um, you know, if you were applying for a job and this is what your life was going to be like after, how much value would you apply to this want ad? That's where the jury's the jury cried. And that's where actually um, in every trial that I've done it, it's the one time that my client has said to me afterwards, that was the most powerful because I part of your closing. I never tell my own clients about my closing because I want them to be in the room and reacting naturally. And my client cried when I read the want ad because it was so real to her. And the jury only cried because they heard and saw her crying mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as I read that want ad. And it was short and deliberate but it was just enough to get the emotion from the room. And I thought it was effective. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. and it gives them what they need. If you're, as you point out, if you're not, if you don't have other numbers with them for them to work with, and if you're not going to suggest to them a number or suggest to them a range, then it gives them the kind of the tools that they need about 
how to think about it um, in a way that is, you know, everybody can at least has some kind of basis or framework for thinking about the one ad idea. And then, but then on top of that, <laughs> to, to that have a, a, be a real emotional moment, both for the client and for the jury, you had to be feeling pretty good about that. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, it, sometimes they, it works. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't. Right. But hopefully it does more often than not. Yeah. Well, uh, Mark, I don't know if you got a chance to talk to the jury afterwards, um, but the, so the the amount they gave you was uh, 1380000 uh, which we've already talked about. Did they give you sort of any indication of how they came to that uh, amount, which is clearly much more than the 75000 the insurance company had, uh, had offered you? Yeah. You know what? At that point, um, we didn't get to talk to the jury in Massachusetts. You are permitted to, but only upon motion of the of the court and you got to disclose it. And while there's an appeal pending, I don't want to um, go that direction. So um, they ch they tried at certain points for a period of time to challenge the verdict and ultimately um, they dropped that appeal, but, um, I did not have a conversation with the jury other than when the juror solicited my attention in that, um, LinkedIn message. And that was the only time that I got any communication back, but I, I would have preferred to have talked to the jury. Yeah. But the one thing I will say is I spent so much time doing focus groups that I kind of, understood what the jury was thinking of how they come up with a number is beyond me i don't know i wish i could have anchored them with some really great number i think i would have driven the value even higher but um it, compared to one uh, seventy five thousand, right i wasn't disappointed at that point in time yeah exactly yeah well, uh, well, Mark, it's certainly a, uh, uh, just really great work. Um, I want to make sure, is there anything about the Erickson versus Cuneo, uh, Cuneo case um, that you want to make sure our listeners know that we haven't had a chance to talk about? No, I think this was um, really nice for me to revisit this case. It's been, it's been a while since I thought of the case and it forced me to call my client and connect with her and find out how she's doing in advance and refresh my own recollection on all the th uh, things that we had done here that worked. So I'm yeah. really happy that they did. Yeah. Well, how, I mean, on that, uh, how is your client doing? She's doing great. You know, actually after this case, she, well, before this, after this injury, but while the case was going on, she actually assumed the role, um, I want to state the role correctly, but she was uh, she was the director of our United States Paralympic track and field team oh, because awesome. she understood what it was like to feel disabled, even though she wasn't. And so she felt like she could really contribute. She was already part of the U.S. Olympic team coaching staff, but now she moved over to the to become the director of the Paralympic team. And she since moved um, to Minnesota, where her closer to family, and she's taken up another, uh, I think it's division one coaching job. So she's doing great. 
that's, that's fantastic. Wonderful. That's fantastic. Well, uh, let me remind everybody, we've been talking about the Erickson versus Cuneo case, which was tried in uh, January of 2019. Um, yeah, I had to check that January of 2019, uh, and resulted in a com- total verdict, including prejudgment interest of uh, $2,324,815.62 was tried up in Middlesex County, uh, Massachusetts. And we have been talking to Mark Diller of the of Diller Law PC. And if you want to look up Mark, you can go to DillerLaw.com. That's D-I-L-L-E-R Law.com. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Hey, Stephen, Yvonne, thank you. Thanks for all you do for our side of the bar and for helping make trial lawyers better. It's really a great forum, and I really feel honored and humbled that you included me in the discussion today. So thanks. Well, we, we appreciate it, and uh, it was it was just a, a great discussion and, and really just great work at trial. So congratulations. Um, congratulations on that. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.